The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by Julian Gewertz. He is the author of a new book, called Unlikely Partners, Chinese Reformers, Western Economists, and the Making of Global China. It's a book that talks about economic reform in China from 1978 to 1993. Why, where did you come up with the idea for really focusing in enormous detail, great detail on that era? Sure, well first let me say thanks so much, Steve. It's a real pleasure to be here at the National Committee. For me, the idea for this book really arose from experiences that I had as a young American going to China and meeting Chinese journalists, Chinese economic students, and young people in China who were really interested in foreign ideas. And as they talked about the history of this period, it was pretty clear to me that they and many Westerners ourselves didn't have a very detailed understanding of where the ideas came from for the reforms or how China went along this path from... What year, what year did you first go? Uh, so I, Well, I first went to China when I was uh, 12 years old, so that would have been in uh, the late 90s. So I definitely am of the uh, generation in many ways that the National Committee has bequeathed unto the United States of uh, Americans who were able to start learning Chinese young and uh, start going to China young. But uh, when, I, when I got to college and started to think about my interest in China as a more academic interest, I realized that there was a lot of room for me as a young historian to look at this period uh, in China's history and say, okay, we know that Mao Zedong died in 1976. We know that China was extremely poor at that time and that Deng Xiaoping uh, and his lieutenants set out a very broad and sweeping reassessment of what the Chinese economy could be. And we know that by 2001, China joined the World Trade Organization and now is the world's second largest economy. But that core question, the animating question, was how did it travel that path? How did it figure out uh, where to go? And so as I began to dig into this period, I realized that one element of this story that had not been written about or studied in detail was what was a very daring step at the time when Chinese leaders decided that they knew they wanted China to become wealthy and powerful, but they didn't yet know how, and that would involve learning from all over the world. Well, you're talking, but at the very beginning, so Deng's decision, I mean, you talk about, you really start with Deng's decision to, for reform, for agriculture. It started in the agricultural right. areas and started, you know, as you point out, your, your hero in the book, I think it's fair to say, is Zhao Ziyang, the unsung hero of China's reform. But... In the very beginning, they didn't. They really hadn't learned from abroad. That's right. That's right. So the key thing to remember is that by the time Mao died in 1976, and then you know after several years under Hua Guofeng when Deng came to power in 1978, there was a sense that the economy was really screwed up. They could see poverty in front of them, and of course Deng uh, loved the mantra of seeking truth from facts. And one of the biggest facts that was in front of them was China's poverty. So starting the reforms uh, required a really sober looking inward, looking at what 
China had become in the Cultural Revolution and empowering the Chinese people and their spirit uh, of entrepreneurship uh, and frankly just hard work to take the economy forward. But as they began to undertake these experiments, these reforms, they realized that the stakes were much larger, that it was not just a matter of increasing agricultural production or helping light industry grow, but that actually the whole economy was being fundamentally reimagined. And of course, for a Communist Party state, that meant immediately that there were serious ideological questions about the role of the market, the role of private enterprise, and individual entrepreneurship. So those big questions forced them, in a way, to uh, begin to think about new policies and ideologies at the central government level that could catch up with the realities on the ground. Why is Zhao Ziyang your unsung hero? Well, Zhao Ziyang is a complicated figure, uh, but the basic facts of his career uh, are little known, and I hope that with this book to bring uh, some, some attention to them. So he started uh, in the reform period as a major agricultural reformer in Sichuan province. He was one of the early figures who really uh, showed what the peasants were capable of if they were freed to farm and uh, do what they wanted with the land that they lived on. But when he was promoted to premier, uh, meaning the head of government, along with Hu Yaobang, who was then general secretary, he became the point man for the economic reforms. He was the official who every day was in charge of managing the economic reforms and coming up with new policies uh, that could help propel especially the urban and industrial reforms forward. Then, uh, after Hu Yaobang's ouster, Zhao became general secretary, and until the late May of 1989, essentially both ran both the economy and the party. Uh, now, Zhao, of course, was purged for opposing the uh, use of military force against the students gathered at Tiananmen Square in June, June 1989, and he's been really written out of the history. So there is a fundamental uh, challenge that the, any of us who are interested in studying this period have to face, which is this guy, Zhao Ziyang, who ran the economy for a decade uh, at a time when Deng Xiaoping provided high-level guidance but was not involved in the day-to-day -day details of policymaking. Uh, this person is written out of the record in China. And as a result, to tell the straightforwardly factual story of this period, how decisions were made, how economists provided advice and developed policies, Zhao Ziyang has to be at the center. So I try to think about his inclusion in this book as not so much uh, polemical, but rather uh, straightforward and factual, because he was uh, running the economy for this decade. Now, the book talks about the tension between those who want to listen to kind of foreigners who are giving them models for reform and folks who think they should just do it on their own. Um, that exists today. What does the book kind of tell you about today? What conclusions does it kind of lead you to make about today where the same tension exists, where we have lots of stories about the evil influence of foreign ideas in China? Right. Well, to me, that question is really at the center of debates over China's future uh, in the present moment. The lesson, or one of the lessons, of the Deng Xiaoping era and its successes is that openness to new ideas about the economy and policymaking from around the world, regardless of their ideological pedigree or where they come from, 
that openness is good for China on China's terms. Uh, Deng Xiaoping believed that, and many of the economic reformers under him at the time uh, believed that. Today's China, under Xi Jinping, seems to be considering a real turn inward, uh, at least in the realm of intellectual and policy exchange. There's tremendous tension that surrounds, as you say, foreign ideas uh, on university campuses, hostile foreign infiltration, as they call it, in the professions. And to me, one of the lessons of this period and one of the arguments that I try to make in this book is that, yes, openness is difficult and international engagement uh, is often slow and sometimes very challenging. But it really does benefit China on China's terms. You know, in this period, in the period that I study in my book, the Chinese were calling the shots. This is not that older model of missionaries going to China to preach uh, and try to force their ideas down the throats of unwilling Chinese inter interlocutors. To the contrary, this was driven by the Chinese side and the Chinese government. And I really think that today, uh, the potential upside is no different. There is huge upside as China contemplates tremendously difficult transition that's underway uh, with slowing growth, debt spreading across the economy, investor confidence uncertain, and some really unprecedented policy challenges. Uh, the upside to openness and engagement to new ideas is, is still powerfully there. Isn't it too late to close the door? Even if they made that policy decision, 325,000 college and graduate students from China in the United States, 25,000 Americans in China, you know, the internet, no matter what the blocks are, it's, it's really too late to reverse this, isn't it? I think that if you think about it as a binary, an on-off switch, you're right, the switch can never go totally off. But I actually don't think of it as a on-off switch so much as maybe a, a dimmer. And you can either have the light turned all the way up, or you can turn it lower and lower. And to me, uh, at the moment, we're seeing an effort to uh, push that dimmer down to a bit, uh, you know, to, to a point where there's still interaction happening. There are still uh, many thousands of uh, students going in both directions each year, as you say. And it's hundreds not, of right, hundreds of thousands, not, excuse not, me, yeah, right. And uh, at the expert level, there are still, of course, expert exchanges. Uh, but frankly, this is now, we are now facing a, a two-way challenge on this front, where one of the areas where uh, the Chinese had been most receptive to continued uh, international advice was in climate change. And now I think it would be, frankly, arrogant not to acknowledge that the U.S. side of that partnership is very much in doubt. So I don't mean to suggest that this is only a matter of the Chinese Communist Party's decision-making, but in the areas that I study in this book, economic policy-making uh, and other sort of elite decision-making, it definitely seems to me that, though not a binary, they're trying to narrow the uh, field for international influence and guidance. Yeah. I think there are portions of the Chinese government that want to do that. I think there are portions that want total opening. And I think, you know, it's it's closing the barn door after the cow has left. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the, the internet, internationalization of, of China is really, it's remarkable. And even, you know, Chung Li has a, 
interesting book on the makeup of the Politburo. And I, I didn't even realize that 19% of the Politburo has, has had uh, received a degree from abroad. Right. And I'm sure in the 19th Party Congress, it'll move to 25, 30%. That's right. Which is a lot more than the United States has. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. But well, we're, we're going afield. But everyone, this is, we're thrilled to be joined by Julian Gewertz today. Um, his Unlikely Partners is really a fascinating view of economic reform from 1978 to 1993, and I think sheds a good deal of light on what is going on today in China. I think if you don't understand the history, you don't understand the present. So it's a must read for those who are interested. But Julian, thank you so much for writing it, and thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you very much for having me.